Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. <clears throat> we got a start on this last week. We answered a couple questions, and we are down to around verse 15. And I'm going to read this for us, uh, but I'm going to drop back to, I think, maybe verse 13 to kind of get a running start at where, we, where we're going to go today. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provisions, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For, necess for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the Jews. I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we and imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Starting with question number three. What might have motivated, and we're looking here at verses 15 through 19, what motivated Paul to preach the gospel? He was compelled by God is the main reason. Yeah. Are we likewise compelled? I'm sorry, Sue. I just said we all have different gifts. We do, don't we? 
and they manifest themselves in many, many different ways uh, in the body of Christ. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to that. Uh, you know, there's a lot about that later on in 1 Corinthians. I just don't know how far we're going to be able to get. But we all do have a responsibility to evangelize to some extent, don't we? And Paul warns us a number of times to not be ashamed of the gospel. Have you ever caught yourself in that position? Oh, I have. You know, in sports, we talk about choking. Uh, in golf, especially, and especially in putting. You know, it's a really anxiety-laden part of the game of golf, and in particularly when you play competitively. And there is a time where you just, you know, you just can't perform very well. You choke under pressure. And I have caught myself doing that when given opportunities to present the gospel. Not all the time, but sometimes. I've chickened out when there was a clear opportunity to go forward. And I, I'm ashamed of that, to, to admit that to you. I think <clears throat> many times we start, but then we're the ones who draw back. Yeah. You know, then when they say something and then, <clears throat> and then you just don't have, you, just don't, you can't just keep going. You can't, I don't know. We should, but I know it's, it's hard. You know, the fact of the matter is, we often uh, have a sense that, that that is some kind of an onerous, heavy burden God has put on us. And, and I've challenged myself, and I challenge you to think of that in a completely different way. I think of that as God has given us an incredible opportunity and blessing to participate with him in the salvation of another human being. It is an incredible opportunity that God would esteem us highly enough. When, what does he say about that? I could make the rocks cry out. Mm -hmm. But instead, he has chosen us, Christians, the body of Christ, to bear witness to him in a fallen world. It, it is an incredible opportunity he gives us. And I know that many of you, maybe every one of you in here, at some point or another, have been a part of it. You know, we don't save anybody. You know, some of us plant, some of us water, but we know it's God that gives the increase. It's God that does the saving. But to be a part of that and to see it come, to, come true is the most exhilarating thing I think you can ever experience, to know that you have participated in the salvation of another human being and then even, even see that person grow into maturity. It, it's really quite something special. So I would encourage you to have that kind of an attitude and outlook about it rather than, oh, I got to do this or I got to do this. And, and I have the boy, there are some people that God has put in my life think, oh my goodness, oh my God, I don't want to have to talk to that person about Jesus. Uh, but all, all you have to do is think, and I'm not saying I, I do it the right way, but. If you just think back to your conversion <clears throat> and how uh, joyful and excited and to know that you could help someone experience that, that's, that's a huge motivation. But we kind of lose that uh, excitement and desire, and it does become, you feel like it's something I have to do, and I don't want to talk to her or him. 
Yeah. Today is Communion Sunday, uh, and every time that I take communion, I think back to the day of my salvation. It makes that much more joyful for me than if I didn't do that. It would be joyful no matter, but I always think back to that time when I got saved. And I've, you know, like most Christians, I've had times of doubt and discouragement in my life about, you know, you call yourself a Christian, what you've just been thinking, you know, that's the devil, you know, two main tools are doubt and discouragement. And every time I think, no, and I think back to my salvation. Now, I have one of those dramatic things. Not everybody's had that. You know, I heard a preacher on radio years ago say, if you can't name the day and the time and all this that you got saved, you're not a Christian. I turned the radio off. As I didn't, at that very basic level, if he got it wrong, what else is he going to get wrong? But not everybody can do that. Okay. Um, what was more important to Paul than exercising his Christian freedom? You know, we had a lot of that about the liberality we have as Christians. What was more important to him than that? Spreading the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, it's really the same thing. Spreading the gospel was more important to him than exercising his liberty. Now, I think we ought to be a little careful on that. The two aren't mutually exclusive every time. No. As a matter of fact, there can be times when exercising your liberty might make the presentation of the gospel better. You know, it just requires wisdom in recognizing that. Can you think of any? How that might, in the practical world, apply? It's pretty easy to understand why not exercising it could apply. And most of us right now are thinking about alcohol. You know, that it might not be a good thing to drink in front of a person. You know, most... No. A lot of unbelievers think that we're pretty stodgy. You know, even the view of the Puritans is that they were this joyless group of people. You know, they wore real bright clothing and were really a very joyful people. It's just been a misconception that's been passed down through the ages. So I think we can have fun <laughs> without being uh, condemned for it. You know, Matter of fact, we should be able to have fun pretty easily, shouldn't we? We can rejoice in a lot of things, in just the, the things of everyday living, more so than unsaved people can, really. So you don't have to walk around all stiff-backed, you know, just enjoying your life. Kathy? When I, when I fail, and, you know, as Christians, we tend to... <clears throat> put our emphasis on the failures in our life rather than the joy of our salvation. But I remember that the Lord looks at the heart. You know? So, yeah, I messed up, but he looks at my heart and he knows what I meant. He knows what I wanted to accomplish, though it came out maybe all wrong. So, yeah, repent of those things, but hold on to that. Yeah. 
this little story will be more important to Ethan than some of the rest of you in here, but uh, after I got saved, a young man who I was teaching golf, oh, maybe a month or so after I got saved, he commented to me, and I think I've told you part of the story before. He said, all the guys to the golf course are talking about you. And I said, yeah, what are they saying? They said, well, you're different. I said, different than what? He said, different than you used to be. And he said, I don't know what it is, but I need it. It was Wayne. And so I present the gospel to this guy, Wayne Patterson. And a year later, we're playing golf together one day, and we had some kind of little bet going with the group behind us. And something happened, you know, in that, in that, just in that little match, I said something. It wasn't profanity, but it was something where the old man surfaced. And Wayne, my friend, looked at me. Tears were coming out of his eyes. And he said, I guess you just showed your true colors. I was on the 12th hole at Helfrick Golf Course right before I hit my second shot. And needless to say, the rest of the round wasn't very good. And when we walked off the 18th green, I went over and told him, I said, you know, Wayne, what you experienced back there, what you saw in me, is absolutely correct. And all the more reason why I need Jesus Christ as a Savior. I'm sorry you had to witness, though. And then he really started crying. I think that was more important than that man's salvation than all just confessing that I had done something wrong. And I guarantee you, two years before that, I would have never. I would have powered up and rea reacted in a completely different way. But sometimes when we mess up, and we do, confessing it to someone that we're close to that's not a Christian, I think, boy, there's something really different about, about that guy. Well, if there is something different, it's just because of the Lord. So. One of my little stories. It may help you sometime. So, um, let's move on. How does Paul describe his strategy of tailoring his presentation of the gospel to fit his audience? himself out of the equation and it's not like a Pharisee among these Gentile pagans <clears throat> or something like that it's it's a sinner trying to help other sinners kind of thing um, but meeting them where they are yeah other ideas on that that's it but there are manifestations of this that we can talk about servant to all, so that takes a lot of humility, but it starts with his own posture and his own heart of bowing before Christ, and then that then allowed him to become whatever he needed to be in that moment. Yeah. There's a slippery slope here that quickly 
through by all the possible means that might save some and see the, the church. I mm-hmm. think we'd probably run uh, to, to this. There's something to be said for you know, being relatable or contextualizing, but not without compromise of the gospel. And so I think that's the that's the tough part here. I had to think about that a lot on a college campus, you know, being a 23-year-old, you know, weird old guy hanging out with 18-year-olds all the time for years. <laughs> you know, that was always the first question out of people's, why are you here? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, well, if I came right out and told you, I'd probably run, so let's just play basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something to be said for that, right? Being relatable, going shooting around golf with somebody, becoming their friend first, but not compromising. can be yeah yeah you can slip off we've got to be careful always in exercising our liberality that we don't try to get to the edge of it mm-hmm. you want to stay safely inside the edge because once you get to the edge it, it it's a like you said it's a, a slippery slope mm-hmm. um, I had a a, a man that um, he was a retired executive from Bristol Myers who after retirement went to work in, in our business and he got saved while there and I mean dramatic salvation this guy was an alcoholic it had cost him his marriage and had really uh, distanced himself from his uh, children or they distanced his children distanced themselves from him because of that and it was just a mess but the guy got saved and I mean you know like a lot of people his whole personality changed uh, but he had a very very good friend that still liked to hang out at Leroy's Tavern and Tom wanted to witness this guy so he went back into the tavern with his friend to witness to him and guess what he went right back into alcoholism. He, he was exercising his liberty, but he wasn't strong enough to stay off that edge. I, I would not remember that had you not mentioned that, Caleb. That's good. Yeah. I had a, a niece who's in a nursing home. She's considerably younger than me, but she's dying. Uh, she has dementia. and. I just had this very, very strong urging to witness to her because I knew she wasn't saved. And um, I mean, I knew this one was of the Lord. You have got to go and, and you've got to go now. So I started to go and something kept me back. I just couldn't go. The next day I went and she is um, in a declining state mentally and physically, but still able to understand things. But how do I present the gospel to her? That she can, because it's like talking to about a five year old child. So to the weak, I became weak. I, I would not present it to her like I might to Doug. 
not that that needs it. But you see what I mean? So I had to find a very, very simplistic way of explaining it to her. You know, I, started, I said, Debbie, I said, you know, most people want to go to heaven, don't they? She said, well, yes. And I said, well, do you want to go to heaven? She said, well, yes, I do want to go to heaven. And I said, well, do you know the gospel? She said, no, I don't, I don't know what that is. See, how it, it, it got pretty easy from that point to just explain it to her in simple terms. Now, I'm not saying that every time somebody prays what sinner's prayer that they're saved. I, I know they're not, as a matter of fact. But that was as far as we could go, I could go with her. So I became weak for her. Another danger in this, this, this is primarily instruction for individuals. And you think, where is he going with this? Bryce and I did a podcast on Friday about the seeker-sensitive church. Now you know where I'm going. After World War II, there became a tsunami of a cultural shift in our country. It started out kind of slowly. You know, the waves were just maybe about knee high. But by the time we got to the mid-60s, it swept over the whole culture. We were, we were underwater with this thing. And I was born in 1947, so I was at the vanguard of that cultural shift. And what it was, it was rejection of just about any form of authority, but particularly the church. And particularly the church because the maybe the most observable part of that rebellion was the sexual revolution. Now you can't be a part of that and be part of the church. So we baby boomers rejected the church. We could have nothing to do with it because it would limit our licentiousness. And I don't think there was anything the church could have done to have made it different. But the main lines, all churches really panicked in that and started trying to figure out how can we reach these people? What we've done in the past isn't working. They were right about that. So they adopted new techniques, this seeker-sensitive model. The problem was that the very things that the church compromised in order to become culturally relevant made them irrelevant because the basic needs of man are the same now that they were in Paul's day. A need for salvation, a, a need for freedom of guilt, a need for righteousness in their lives. So adopting all these things made the church like the culture. And we know we're not supposed to be like the culture, don't we? Why in the world would somebody want to keep coming to church when they're getting the same thing inside that they're getting outside, that they're running from, really? Make sense? So in that sense, we've got to be a little careful that we don't shut, maybe think of that when you were, I think it's got, there's some limits to this. 
the church just can't make itself a chameleon to be like everything out there. And the reason for that is when we come here, when we come here on Sunday, what are we basically coming here for? We are coming here, yes, Valerie mouthed it, we are coming here to worship a holy God. So to take on the characteristics of the culture is not to work. We're trying to make the worship service an evangelistic service, and that it ain't. And that is a, um, an insult to God. It is not pleasing to God that we would do that. We, we don't even, even want to form our worship services specifically for believers. It's for God. And when we do that, the believers become edified and built up. But it's because we're rightly worshiping God, not trying to make the service something for us. That's man-centered. You know, this is the ultimate in God-centeredness is when we come in here to worship. Got it? Now, that's not to say that we don't, when we go outside individually, now we have to adopt these things rightly. We can't ever get outside of what the Bible would tell us to do in this, but rightly we can do these to, <clears throat> to evangelize the world. Make sense? Anybody want to add to that? Take away from it? I have a question. Yeah? So, I don't know, maybe it was in the spring that we had, um, I, I think it was in Peter, that he was, he might have the wrong I don't know. Uh, apostle, but he was eating with the, the Gentiles, and was it Paul who came, or I have it backwards. So he, then he stopped eating with the Gentiles, I mean, and then trying to please the Judaizers, and so um, I don't remember. That was that Peter. Was, okay, I, thought it, I thought it was, but I didn't remember yeah. who came to him. Was it Paul that came to him? Yeah. Okay. And so I guess, it, and I don't really have a good memory of the whole sermon, but he was trying to make himself the same to both people and so drawing that line I mean I can't remember, where should he have drawn the line to fit in with the Judaizers I mean yeah I yeah well they were they were being legalists yes I mean much like in the Jerusalem council back in Acts Peter choked <laughs> he was agreeing with them that these these new Gentile converts had to be like them. They had to be circumcised. They had to observe things of the law that was the antithesis of, of what Christianity was about. Uh, and Paul said, I scolded him to his face. Well, I guess my question is, how was Paul witnessing to the Jews when so much of yeah. what their faith was in was Yeah, because he said to the Jew that I became a Jew. I don't know what the limits of that are, Valerie. I really don't. I don't know exactly. He didn't say exactly what he did, but he he couldn't have gone along with their um, 
ultimately with their uh, hearkening back to the law. Matt. That's what he's trying to liberate them from. So, good question. I think we nailed it. The, the appropriate application of this, this passage is, is more missional and, and evangelistic, not you know, for, for a worship service of my wife had a few opportunities to spend some summers in Africa and myself in China. Like the way, the way you would have a normal conversation to try to you know go about speaking of the gospel, like you know, with an everyday person who lives in China, you you have to bring in totally different presuppositions even to the beginning of the conversation. You can't even say God and assume that the same thing pops in yeah. their head. You know, when you say God, because what's going to pop in their head is actually because what they're taught growing up in an extremely atheistic culture is a mythical creature or something like we think of when we think of Zeus or something like that. So you have to go way, way back to the beginning and not have any presuppositions as you go into it. That's becoming all things to all men so that by all possible means I might say some. Right? It's, it's just having a different approach to understanding the context that you're in of how to appropriately go about you know, sharing the gospel with them. And Paul most definitely sure had to do that with the Jews, just like you see with Corinthians. I see that you have a statue named to an unknown God. Well, what you do not know, I declare to you what is known. Right? Paul was, by God's grace, incredible at that, of going into a culture and being able to relevantly, not with compromise, then share the gospel with them in a way that would culturally make sense. Just the same as we would with, say, if we have a West Side friend who grew up German Catholic. Right? We have to approach things Think they're a believer, but we go into that and see their lives maybe stacks up differently. We go about it, you know, really, really differently. Um, so I think that's what Paul is, is getting at here. Um, yeah. It certainly takes a level of wisdom uh, on the spot when when we have these opportunities. It's just we don't want to miss the opportunity. <laughs> We don't want to become ashamed of the gospel. Well, going back to the worship service, uh, if if the minister is preaching expositionally, then you're obviously going to have verses that are going to be evangelistic. So that gets covered yeah. in, the, in the process of going through the Bible verse by verse, and it can touch hearts. I'm sure that happens all the time. So you don't have to specifically have an altar call and, and, and present it that way, but you do, you are presenting it. I, I had a friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago tell me about this church he was going to here in town. And it's one of those churches that doesn't have a name like Faith Bible Church. You know, you see churches today, they all have to have some kind of clever name, the this or the that or, you know. And, I mean, he was so excited to tell me about this. And, and he said, and we don't do expositional preaching. I don't think he knows what it is. I really don't think he knows what, he's very immature. He's a sweet guy. I just love him to death. Uh, but he said, we don't do expositional preaching. I said, oh, really? Good. I, well, what do you do? He said, well, the pastor just, you know, preaches on what comes to him that day. And I let it go at that. Uh, he was in a hurry and left, and, and I was kind of relieved because I 
just really didn't want to get into the conversation, to tell you the truth. And, you know, but I thought, how else can you cover the wholeness of the Bible by preaching that way? You are tickling their ears. A time will come when men will no longer endure sound doctrine. And that's the, maybe we've always been in that age, but we're certainly in that age today where we, we preachers preach what kind of what people want to hear. Uh, and it's not always health and wealth, but it's kind of easy believism stuff. But when you preach expositionally over a period of time, you cover the gamut of the, of the Bible so that the congregation gets built up in maturity by doing that rather than this hopscotching around. Now listen, there is nothing wrong occasionally with topical sermons. You know, John MacArthur does them. Uh, you know, he does series sometimes on things. And maybe they're not always sermons. Maybe they're just things he produces to put out to the, uh, through his uh, uh, ministry to, that you can get thing on the fulfilled family or a charismatic chaos or whatever. He's done so many of those things. But the meat, in my opinion, has to be expositional preaching exposes the truth of the passage. To not do that is, is in my opinion, actually reckless for a, a church to, to do otherwise. Yes? There's so much of what you're saying just now, but also you made a comment last week, and I've, I've lost what it is. Oh my I'm goodness, so thinking, have I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking how, mu- how lukewarm that must taste to him. Because remember in Revelation, this God says, you're lukewarm. I spit you out of my mouth. It doesn't even, you don't taste good to me. You don't smell good either. <laughs> I'm going back to that. Um, yes, I don't remember what that was. I do remember that we, we, that we, yeah. It'll probably come to me about 3 a.m. I'll call you Janelle and let you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the older we get, the more this happens. You can't remember a name. Then you'll remember the first name, but you can't remember the second name. And then about 4 a.m. you wake up, oh, yeah, yeah, Hobson, Hobson. Yeah, that was it. Got it. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to get this one, though. Um. How does Paul prepare for the race or fight that is the Christian life? Step by step, there's no shortcuts in the race. Um, so keeping the goal in mind and, and a daily discipline um, run with the Lord is, is what it takes. 
Yeah, and we, we know from Hebrews that it's no sprint. And if you start off sprinting, you're going to get out of breath pretty fast because <laughs> it's a long race. It's a long race. Hebrews 12, uh, first couple uh, verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also, listen to this, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Some versions say entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, one of the ways we prepare for this race is, oh, it's in Colossians chapter 3, I think, and maybe back, maybe in Ephesians, I'm not sure, about that put off this and put on this, you know, mortify, put to death these sinful desires that are clinging to me and instead put on this cloak of righteousness. And we know we get the imputed cloak that saves us or justifies us and, and not only that, it makes us holy. Uh, but we are to, I can't, there's a term for it. You know, it's imputed righteousness. There's another term for that righteousness that we are required to attain on our own efforts. I can't think there's a term for it, theologians use. Uh, but this talks about that. Put away the sin, put on righteousness. Acquire these things, get rid of those things. And uh, I think John MacArthur, one day he said, that is no simple task because it hurts to get rid of it. <laughs> it can be very painful. <clears throat> getting rid of our sin that clings to us. There's an intentionality about it, an act of the will. Kathy? They use such terms as beat your body into yeah. submission and, and die to the flesh. And uh, There's a book I'm going through right now on a particular character trait, and it says as you exercise uh, getting rid of this or uh, overruling it, it could take anywhere from two months to 24 months of exercise yeah. to get rid of it. So it's not something, I'm going to get rid of this next week, I'm going to pray about it every day, and it'll be gone by Christmas. Well, maybe. maybe yeah. Uh, I've had so many analogies to this, and, and one of the things I do professionally is to teach other people how to play golf. And it is a very, very difficult process. It takes a lot of energy to teach anything, doesn't it? I mean, a teacher comes home at the end of the day. I don't care what you're teaching. You come home exhausted because it takes a lot of input to do that. And, you know, in, in the world of professional sports, there's, a, there's an adage that's just dead wrong. And, it, and you've heard it. If you can, do. If you can't, teach. It's downgrading teachers that, well, if you could really do something worthwhile, you'd do it. But if you can't, well, then, no. That's people that have no concept of how difficult teaching is. It is an emotionally draining process to do it and do it well. Golfers come to me in 100 golf lessons. 90 of them will have bad grips. They do, they do not, the most fundamental thing, how do you hold on to the golf club? They have it all wrong. And I had a lady one time came to me and said, well, 
uh, I've read Arnold Palmer's book, and uh, I don't want you to tell me about my grip. And I said, we're done. No charge. Because I've seen your grip, and it's terrible. And you can't get better unless we fix that. And her husband's sitting back. It's one time we guys stuck together. But what they always say, when I show them the right way, that doesn't feel good. A lot bigger lesson than that, isn't there? It doesn't feel good to get rid of what's wrong sometimes because that's what we're used to doing. And my comment, I don't really care about what feels good to you. I want you to get better. And if you're going to get better, we're going to have to do this. But you're going to have to, an act of the will, every time get that right. And if you start getting it wrong, I'm going to fuss at you. I'm going to scold you for getting it wrong. That's what we owe one another. And this is where we're supposed to rightly judge, isn't it? Within the body of Christ. You know, if Doug catches me doing or saying something wrong, he should come to me gently and correct me in that. Gently knowing that he too could maybe do the same the same thing. Now the body of Christ is a big is a big advantage we have in uh, running this race. Do it together. Well, I'm exhausted. Uh, anybody have anything else you want to say about this? Are we good? Okay, the Emily row, are we okay over here? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel left. I feel left out. <laughs> we don't have a Debbie role. <laughs> well, um, next week we will start on chapter ten. Uh, MacArthur titled that "the the danger of overconfidence." <laughs> um, we'll see where that takes us. Uh, Isn't the 24th a Sunday? Yes. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to be here that day, so we're going to miss a Sunday, unless somebody else would like to take over teaching where we get that week. Uh, We have family coming in that morning from out of town, and uh, I I really, the whole family Christmas has kind of got centered around this, so I apologize for that. But uh, uh, we'll get as far as we can go. and, And I said the very first time, that I for sure wanted to get chapter 13, I think it is the love chapter, Uh, but we may skip forward uh, to get to that at some point, Uh, we'll see. I mean, that's really where Paul is kind of taking the whole Corinthian church in this, so I think it'd be good for us to to get up to that most positive part of 1 Corinthians at some point in this, and I think that is 24th, that's the last day of the year, isn't it, that we'll, we'll meet for the last time, so. I, I really wish we could finish this whole thing because there's so much good stuff out here. And some of it, the most controversial stuff, we're probably not going to get to. It's about tongues and gifts and all that that, that uh, I kind of would enjoy getting into that. But it's just we're just not going to have time to finish it all. So.